the waiting room. It's telling you what its purpose is. It is honestly describing exactly what it is that you're going to be doing, waiting. That's why when you see on Facebook news feeds every once in a while somebody complains about they made it on time or early to their doctor's appointment and the doctor obviously doesn't care about their time because they're 20 minutes late, I just want to respond, well, where are you sitting? <laughs> the waiting room, right? So, I mean, it's telling you up front. The name of the room is not, you know, hey, see a doctor immediately room or we have the results of your test in this room. It's the waiting room, but I know it is excruciating. And even for me, my OCD brain, when I'm sitting in the doctor's waiting room, like to try to keep it preoccupied, I read everything, whatever chart is on the wall, whatever magazines might be there, whatever pamphlets. The only problem is before the doctor has walked in, I typically have diagnosed myself with four other terminal diseases. That no one likes to wait. Too much is on the line for there to be this much time committed to just silence. And it's that feeling that I can't help but imagine God's people, like collectively, his people, how they must have felt from time to time, even with God, that they had to have asked the question, why isn't he talking? And why isn't he speaking to us? And they probably would look to those who are considered prophets among Israel and ask, do you have anything? Anyone? Does anyone have anything from God? Even within our Bible itself, even our canon records for us a significant period of just God's silence you have what's called this intertestamental period. It's the time between the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, which a lot of scholars think was probably written around 400 to 440 B.C., to the opening pages of the book of Matthew. That's a 400-year period where it appears that God is largely silent or quiet. 400 years where there's no at least canonical prophet who hears or is even sent by God with a message. And so I want you to let that number sink into your head, 400 years. So if you were just to take today, 2015, subtract 400 years, we're talking 1615 is the year. Johannes Kepler just published a book in response to Galileo's discovery of Jupiter's moons. That's how long it was. Mary Talbot is released from the Tower of London. The second volume of Cervantes' Don Quixote is released. That's how far back it is. We haven't heard a word from God, at least definitively. And you'd think after 400 years, they might start getting a little impatient, might start to get a little anxious, that bigger and deeper questions might start to fill the minds. There are parts of Scripture that just lament we keep waiting. There are psalms that remind God even, the author will try to remind God, don't you remember when you used to do this? Don't you remember a long time ago when you did this to the people? Or you, you, your mighty arm rescued them from this? Where in the world are you? Psalms that point out to even like Psalm 22, verse 1 and 2, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, yet I find no rest. And the reason why is because the waiting is the worst. And we are a people by way of culture and society that has lost all discipline to wait. Now, there might be somebody in your life that you recognize um, is patient, like, you know, like they're just very calm, very patient, maybe that type B personality. I, I have never been accused of being a patient man. Um, but even by way of society and culture nowadays, we want everything to be instant, right? Do you know there used to be a day when they didn't have instant oatmeal? Can you imagine living in those times? 
It's just crazy. They didn't have instant rice, things like that, instant cereal. We want instant results. This is why we love the microwave. We want everything to be faster, do we not? Even when it comes to technology, does anyone, I mean, I have to go back several years now, but does anyone remember this sound? Just remember this sound? How does that make you feel right now? How do you feel? Are you a little irritated and anxious? That used to be a way of life. We didn't even know any better. Like you just that's what you did. You just dialed up. That's how it worked. And everybody had AOL and that's just that's just how we lived our life. And now, if it takes like longer than two seconds for my page to re to load on my computer, I'm just like, this is a piece of junk, I need a new right? I mean that's kinda <laughs> You know they make washing machines with an express wash now? Did you know that? Like you can launder your clothes in a machine, like it does it for you with clean water that gets pumped into it in minutes. And even that seems to take too long. I mean, in the old days, you'd have to carry your clothes to a water source, pull out that washboard, carry along the homemade soap that probably took you three days to make, and, and then you spend a better of two days just washing everything by hand. Did you know you can fly from New York City nowadays to Los Angeles, California in less than six hours? Less than six hours. And that used to be like a two-month trek by way of caravan, and like half of the people died on the way. Like, it was just terrible. And the whole time you're even in that plane, less than six hours to get from one side to the other side of the United States, what are you thinking as you're sitting there? Are we almost there, right? <laughs> Anytime you get all the, car, the kids in the car, and right, just as soon as you start taking off, what's the things that they say, right? What are they? Are we there yet? We are conditioned to one, instant results, faster, faster times, the quickest of everything, from service, food, to transportation. Waiting is not a discipline that we value as a society. And if you don't believe me, just let me take this test after church. Like when you leave here after church, do this. At the next stoplight that you're at that's red, as soon as it turns green, you've got a line of people behind you, just kind of wait a minute. Just And let's just see what happens in terms of our society and culture, right? Now, if you have an I Love Southside sticker on the back of your car, don't do that. Right? We have some vineyard stickers in the lobby we're going to give you on your way out. You can... I'm just teasing. It's just a joke. I, I, just a joke. And I just want to say this to you, especially if you're in a season of waiting in silence. Because many of you, I know, right now you are. That's where you're at. Like, you're waiting. You're not alone. And you wouldn't be the first. God's people throughout history have had to experience the waiting room. And in it, they've had to interpret God's silence in it. You've got to do something with that. Why is, he, why is he not saying something? Why is he being quiet? Why is he being silent? Now, the ancients long ago decided that time would be measured for us based on celestial movement. So we measure time based on the rotation of the earth in relation to the sun, and in it, a year equals 365 days, except for that pesky fourth year that we call leap year, where we try to catch up because of slight glitch. A day equals 24 hours, an hour equals 60 minutes, a minute equals 60 seconds. The average lifetime for each of us, just on average, you have 2,366,820,000 seconds. That's how long you have. 
Now, some of you are down to just plain minutes or millions, but so you don't have a lot of time to spare. And if you want to spend some time philosophizing, we could really enter into deep thoughts about time, especially in that the definition of time itself is very elusive. But we recognize it is the stuff that life is made of. And it is limited for us in our present state. And this is all good as long as God plays by the same rules, right? If God created time, he should follow, I would think, by the same restrictions. But you have this one passage that talks about time, at least for God, in the New Testament. I don't know if you remember it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, remember this? It's very obnoxious, but do you remember this passage? Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Now, right now you're thinking, some of Sam's sermons kind of feel close. <laughs> but a thousand years are like a day. Now, in context, it's intended to positively point to God as infinitely patient, especially when it comes to salvation. But honestly, I think this passage kind of works both ways. When it feels like you have been sitting in a waiting room for quite some time, what you don't want to hear back to you is, oh, I know you've been waiting a long time now, you know, but for God it's like just a minute. Don't forget with God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, because the response is, yeah, well, I don't have a thousand years, so let's speed this up. It appears that God has an entirely different perspective on time than the rest of us. His beginning and end points don't seem to exist in the same way it does for us. His breadth and ability and power seems to allow him to both engage with our time and escape its limitations. And this might be frustrating to those of us that are sitting in the waiting room. Can you imagine if you had been waiting for the doctor for over two hours in the ER, so to speak, and when you finally ask a nurse, she says, oh, well, for the doctor, an hour is like a minute. (laughs) Well, that's not going to do, so go call the doctor right now. And in it, there's several stories in the Bible that comes to mind in terms of being in God's waiting room. One is in Genesis chapter 37, where it tells us that there was a young man named Joseph who's just 17 years old. So think about a junior or senior in high school, and God reveals to him at that young age of 17 by dream that he's going to rise to greatness among his own family, among his tribe. He has all promise. We're talking he's in the National Honor Society, um, which, by the way, I was kicked out of the National Honor Society and restated, reinstated, a story I'll share with you at some other time. Joseph was probably a great athlete, schools knocking on his door, offering scholarships and opportunities. Everything looks great for Joseph. And then, after God, not just some human analyst or scout, God tells him of his future. Joseph, it's going to be great. And no sooner did that take place that all of a sudden he's betrayed by his own brothers and sold into slavery, like barely escaping his own life. Then he finds himself in a context where he is falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar is a commander in Pharaoh's army, in which case it lands him in jail. And can you imagine how many times Joseph prayed and wondered, where in the world are you? Like, how is all this... like? Didn't you just tell me that my future was going to be good and bright? Didn't you reveal to me that your plans for me were, you didn't say anything about this. Like, I didn't even do anything. 
I have been falsely accused in every way. And it would be one thing if God spoke back in those moments and said, Joseph, now calm down. I, I know things don't look good really now, good right now, and I know the situation looks bleak, but listen to me. In just 13 years, this is what I'm going to do. Instead, what Joseph gets is nothing. The text does not indicate that God ever spoke to Joseph or ever once revealed to him his future will be great. So for Joseph, as he sits in prison, it is a literal nightmare. And how many times all day long do you think he cried out to God asking, what in the world is going on? And why? And where are you? It reminds me, I don't know if you heard the story of Brian Banks is his name. He was an outstanding high school athlete in California. In fact, he was on his way with a full-ride scholarship to USC, who I don't root for, but I like the Brian Banks story here. And just as he's about to exit high school, he was accused by a girl in his high school of raping her. And so he was arrested, and before it went to trial, he was advised by his counsel that if he's found guilty, um, he's looking at a very, very long prison sentence. And so he was encouraged to go ahead and plea uh, the sentence, the, the charge. And they gave him five years in prison, five years on probation, and then a lifetime on the sex offender registry. All the while, him claiming he never did anything. He was falsely accused. And after serving five years in prison, he's lost, of course, his scholarship to USC. All of his hopes and dreams have been dashed. After he served his prison sentence, the girl who had accused him finally came forward and admitted that she'd lied and made the whole thing up, ruining his life, his prospects, his future. So here's a little clip of Brian Banks and his story as he lost everything and went to prison. We're going to start here with a story that reads like a movie. It's about a young guy with a promising NFL career derailed by a prison sentence for a crime he did not commit. Yeah, it took him years to just clear his name, and now he's getting a second chance to pursue his dream. Sports anchor Rob Powers from our New York City affiliate WABC is here with more. So many people rooting for this guy. Really a fascinating story. It's hard not to root for him. The National Football League preseason, it can drag on, but at least one player is enjoying every minute of it. The NFL has quarterbacks, halfbacks, and fullbacks, and this preseason, one very important comeback. 28-year-old Atlanta Falcon linebacker, rookie Brian Banks, is one step closer to making his dream a reality after taking to the gridiron against the Cincinnati Bengals this week. Nice job getting off a block and making a play. It's still one of those situations where, like, you know, it happened. But, like, now it's just replaying in my head. But this is no ordinary rookie. Banks joined the Falcons after spending five years in jail and five on parole. Why? He was wrongly convicted of raping a high school classmate. In May 2012, justice was served. The verdict for Banks overturned the new ruling, not guilty. The people's motion to dismiss this case pursuant to Section 1385. I may not ever get the answers as to why I was supposed to go through what I went through, but I know that I'm here today and I remain unbroken. And you know, you look at the NFL right now with all the stories that are out there, the arrests, the Aaron Hernandez saga that's played out in front of us in the media, based on the hope that he has shown all of us, I wouldn't bet against Brian Banks. Before the charges, Banks was a high school football star headed to the University of Southern California on a full scholarship to play for one of college football's best teams. But now what's in the past is in the past. I will take this opportunity and be the best person that I can be in this world and to show people 
that no matter what you go through, there is light at the tunnel. The truth is that Brian committed no crime that day, that he's a strong young man with an amazing future, and we want to get him back on track. And back on track he is. Banks signed with the Falcons in April and picked up two tackles in Thursday's game. Definitely one of the best moments of my life. It really is something. So it is on to the future. The Falcons open the regular season September 8th. And Brian Banks may be a long shot to make the final roster, but, you know, that's okay. He has beaten the odds before, and no one, no one is betting against him this time Such either. an incredible story. His mom stood by his side throughout Every his step of the time. way, yeah. and now it's paying off. Yeah. Uh, great story. Great to have you. Could you imagine uh, 10 years of your life, every day, thinking to yourself, where are you? Like, why is this even happening? So if you go back to the story of Joseph, it tells us in Genesis 41, verse 46, that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Now, if you do the math, you will see that Joseph's life passed through hell for 13 years. 13 years. I'm irritated when I got another minute left microwaving my hot pocket. 13 years and why I know a thousand years is like a day blah 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 but those 13 years I'm talking like all throughout his 20s those are like prime years he doesn't get those back or I'm reminded of another story in the Old Testament of a man named little little guy at the time a young man named David who was the runt of the litter in his family he had older brothers who were far more impressive in regards to size and appearance and strength and you might remember that story in the Old Testament where the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel. And so all of Jesse's sons pass by, and as soon as Samuel sees the first one, he thinks, so this has got to be it. This guy looks like a king. And yet God doesn't say anything. No, nope, that's not it. That's not it. Passes through the sons, and none of them were chosen, which is odd because God had sent him to Jesse's house to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And he finally asks Jesse, do you have any other kids? <laughs> well, the youngest, the runt of the litter, David, he's out with the sheep. We'll bring him here. And so David walks in. Most scholars think that he's probably about 15 years old. And as soon as he walks in, God says to Samuel, that's the one. Anoint him to be the next king of Israel. Now, could you imagine being a 15-year-old, laying your head on the pillow and thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be king, right? Could you imagine that? He's got Lion King songs in his head. Oh, I just can't wait to be king, right? My middle son, Caleb, he's 15. He's almost 16, but he's 15. I'm trying to picture Caleb like he's going to be the next king. Like, it's just crazy to me. Like, hey, Caleb, I need you to mow the lawn. Dad, I'm going to be king. Like, they're just... You know what David does as soon as he's anointed with oil? You know what he does? You know what happens next? This next king? He goes back and he tends the sheep. Like, could you imagine? Like, that's great, son. Now go back and take care of the sheep. I mean, I'd be like, are you kidding me? I'm like the next king. Like, there's got to be a better role than this. Which, you know, going back to tend the sheep might not be a big deal if, you know, it's November and you know that you're going to be inaugurated the end of January. But David, he just day after day, month after month, year after year, still lives with the sheep. He eventually does get a job in the government, mainly as a musician. And then you know what happens? Hardly anything, except for a, a, lo a lot of struggle, a lot of heartache, and attempted murder scenarios. 
And you know when David finally becomes king? It's in 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. It says, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. Again, if you do the math, and I'm not good at it, but I could do this here, it's 15 years that David has struggled to finally come into what God had purposed. 15 years, or 473,040,000 million seconds. That's a lot of seconds. And how many times do you think when David was bored out of his mind with the sheep or running and hiding for his life in a cave that his mind kept going back to that moment when he was in his dad's house in Bethlehem and the prophet Samuel anointed his head with oil and declared he would be king? For 15 years, do you think he ever went back and thought, where are you? Like, I thought you made me this promise. And maybe in your discouragement, just finally give up and think, you know what, it's just never going to happen. That ship has sailed. Nothing is coming together. With your eyes up into heaven asking, why, God? I mean, come on. I know a thousand years is like a day, blah, 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 but come on. And I can't adequately answer exactly why God doesn't just come right out and tell us exactly what it is he's doing so I know where I stand at any given moment. Like, even if he doesn't tell me everything in terms of my future, at least give me a quick update into what's happening at this very moment. In fact, even now, I don't know, like, if you've ever been in the waiting room, you've got a loved one in surgery. Did you know now they can call the waiting room to give updates on the surgery and how it's going? I mentioned last week my son's uh, surgery when they removed his kidney. Every hour they would call just to let us know, kind of, here's where we're at in the procedure, and here's what's going on, and he's doing good, and, and those sorts of things. At least that, God, give me, you don't have to tell me the end story just yet. Give me a periodic call and an update to tell me what's going on in this moment. But what those stories beg us to at least consider is that God isn't ignoring us, at least to the degree that we think he is. He isn't sleeping. He hasn't gone on vacation. But rather, he is orchestrating things that we don't even realize, that there are variables and conditions that we couldn't even possibly understand if God were to even attempt to reveal it to us now. Joseph, at the age of 17, doesn't have the slightest clue how being sold into the hands of the Midianites could possibly ultimately rescue all of God's people. Not a clue. He wouldn't possibly be able to connect the dots in the moment that you have to be in Potiphar's house because you have to go to prison because you have to meet a cupbearer that used to work for Pharaoh. And if those things don't happen, you will not save your entire family from starvation. It's only at the very end that Joseph can look back and go, oh my goodness, God was at work the entire time. And, and not just for me, like it's not even just a personal Joseph thing, but like for his entire people, for God's larger purposes. God was doing a huge thing on the earth and using Joseph in the midst of it. And even if Joseph was tempted just to think it was about him, in the end he could look back and see God was actually using me to rescue an entire people. Joseph can say, oh, God wasn't asleep, and he wasn't inattentive. He was at work all along. And in that 13-year process, Joseph will learn faith, and he will learn trust in the suffering, and his character will shift from being, really, when you read the story, kind of an obnoxious and arrogant 17-year-old to somebody who could be a trusted commander, second-in-command, in the most powerful nation and empire on the earth at the time. Joseph, for 13 years, was in the process of transformation, 
He just couldn't see it. David will be shaped in the fields as a shepherd with experiences that will ultimately teach him all about courage to take on enemies that threaten. It might look at the moment like just a lion and a bear, as significant as that is, but he will learn that God empowers him in those moments, and that will translate later when he's king. David's heart now is young and inexperienced, but in those 15 years of the waiting room, it will be transformed to such a degree that it will be said of him, he has God's own heart. And it would be tempting, would it not, to believe if you were Joseph and David and really many other characters of the Bible that God had just forgotten, that he must have just changed his mind. They've been waiting too long. And what they will understand as they look back as God makes an eternal covenant with the house of David is, oh, he was at work all along, even when it felt like he was silent. And undoubtedly, even for our Savior, Jesus. Remember that scene when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? It must have felt like his father was silent and abandoning him. No doubt in the midst of his suffering on the cross, he must have been tempted to wonder, where are you? In fact, that psalm that I read earlier, Psalm 22, is exactly the one that Jesus will quote when he's on the cross, when he will cry out and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as a father in the moment appears quiet. But he will act. The curtain of the temple is about to tear, and God is at work, even in the moment, accomplishing something greater than anyone could imagine. And so if you're in the waiting room, I just want you to know this. You're not alone. Your time in the waiting room can be the most transformative moment of your life. Determine to not be broken. Determine to continue to walk by faith, even if you need to lift up your voice to God and say, come on already. Look for the moments when it starts to come together. When you catch a glimpse, because I, I tell you, they happen. When you catch a glimpse of hope, when you're able to finally start to connect the dots, when you're able to say, oh, I was completely devastated when that friend walked right out of my life. But now I recognize if that person would have stayed in my life, I would never have the opportunities that I have now. The dots are coming together. Or that moment when you could say, I mean, I was depressed for a year after I got fired from my job, like true depression. And had that not have happened, I would have never then had this open up to me and be able to find what I was supposed to do my entire life. Or if I would have experienced even success in this moment, I would have blown it all on my addictions. God very graciously waited so he could transform my life and my character in such a way that he could finally handle, hand to me success and know I'll be faithful. You must determine to stand in faith that does declare, I can't see it right now, but I'm trusting you. And I'm not saying that flippantly. It will be some of the most difficult and challenging times of your life. The waiting room always is. But no, you're not alone. God is still at work, and he is still on his throne. Wherever you find yourself, know this. God is in control. He will make it right. May he give you peace in the midst of the waiting room. Let's pray together. God, for those who are in the middle of waiting, I pray that you'd come quickly. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us. Everyone needs compassion. Love.